chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. We're going to continue our series in this wonderful, powerful book, Daniel 5. I'd like to label this sermon the Feast of Folly. And don't forget, we have lunch being served afterwards. Thank you, Susan and your team for doing that. So I think that frees me to preach as long as I can, right? Lunch is being served afterwards. I won't do that to you, but please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lord, his wives and his lords, his, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the, of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen, queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, 
all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Meany, meany, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the, Ch the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lindsay. Jack Miller once said, God's grace flows downhill to the low places, not uphill to the pompous and put-together places. God's grace flows downhill to the low places, not uphill to the pompous and put-together places. That's a good way to think about Daniel chapters 4 and 5, because these two chapters actually go together. They are linked by way of contrast. Daniel 5 is the foil, the flip side to Daniel 4. In chapter 4, grace flows downhill to the low place for King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 5, grace does not flow uphill to the pompous place for King Belshazzar. So the question God is putting before each one of us is, which place will you occupy? Will you occupy the low place or the pompous put-together place? Which place will you occupy, friends, in your heart when you leave here today? Scripture says repeatedly God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This passage is asking, will we be the proud who get opposed or the humble who receive grace? It's a crucial question for each one of us posed by this passage. Let's unpack it in three stages. First, I would call the setting and the tension the hand of God's judgment. First, the hand of God's judgment. 
the Persian army is at the gates. But King Belshazzar believes the city of Babylon is entirely secure. I mean, the walls of Babylon are high and thick, and the Persians have been out there threatening for over two years now. So Belshazzar throws a feast, a big feast, with the entire Babylonian aristocracy, but things take an ominous turn. Look at verse 2. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, perhaps now under the influence of alcohol might be the implication. He commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, meaning his predecessor, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they bring the vessels. In verse 3, they're described, the vessels taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. Very intentional description in verse 3. The vessels taken out of the temple, the house of the God of Israel. And with them they praise they praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone in verse 4. They are treating the true God as weak and powerless and as defeated by the Babylonian gods. But the true God, who hates idolatry, responds immediately in verse 5. Fingers of a human hand appear and begin writing on the wall by the lampstand, where all can see. And Belshazzar's reaction says it all, beginning in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Then the king's color changed. The blood drains from his face. His thoughts alarmed him. The king realizes perhaps he's not the master of his fate, the captain of his soul, as the famous poem says. His limbs gave way in verse 6. The Hebrew literally could be interpreted as the knots of his loins loosened. It appears he had an accident, perhaps lost control of his bowels, his knees knocked together. Belshazzar felt so secure a moment earlier, holding the vessels of the conquered God of Israel, praising the gods of wood and stone, but the God he thought was conquered is now answering in judgment. Now, there is a lesson to be drawn until we move on in this story. The lesson is this. You cannot remove the reality of divine judgment when talking about the God of the Bible. This is an important contemporary lesson for us. You cannot remove the reality of divine judgment when talking about the living God. I've been in my own devotional times in part working through the book of Isaiah with the help of scholar D.A. Carson and in Isaiah 30. The people want sermons with no judgment. Speak to us smooth things, they say. Dr. Carson comments, this sounds like the spirituality of our day inside and outside the church. He says, for much of Therapeutic Christianity, which seeks to make us secure psychologically. And much of ecumenical Christianity, 
which seeks to secure unity at the expense of essential truth, and much of the health and wealth gospel, which seeks financial security and health security with promises God has not made. Each of those, he says, though very different, all have something in common. All are missing the powerful theme of impending judgment. Therapeutic Christianity, ecumenical Christianity, the health and wealth gospel, he says, though different, they're all missing the powerful theme of impending judgment. Daniel 5 puts that theme front and center. Friends, you cannot remove the reality of divine judgment when dealing with the living God. An acquaintance of mine, a friend of mine, who very publicly deconstructed and renounced his faith in Christ, just this week he posted on his Instagram account that he had kissed goodbye the doctrine of hell. And I'll admit, it's hard to get our minds around an eternal hell. I think if you're honest intellectually, it's hard to get our minds around that fully. So kissing goodbye to that doctrine of judgment and eternal hell can seem attractive. But Christianity is meaningless. Meaningless without a great white throne of Revelation 20 and an eternal hell. You cannot remove divine judgment from the God of the Bible. Please don't seek to do so. There is no security from his judgment as King Belshazzar suddenly realizes. Color from his face drains. His knees are knocking. Then the queen in verse 10, probably the queen mother, says, you know, I know a guy. It's almost like, Hey, I know a plumber who can help you. Hey, I know a guy. And she remembers the elderly exile Daniel, who interpreted the dreams of his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, and so enters our prophet. So see, secondly, the indictment of God-defying pride. Now the indictment, the prophetic indictment of God-defying Human pride. Instead of the handwriting on the wall, Daniel first reads Belshazzar's heart. I mean, Daniel's in his 80s now. He's an old man. But Daniel has something that youth can never provide, the perspective of personal history. He reminds Belshazzar of his own experience with his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, beginning in verse 18. Daniel says, because of all of his greatness, all peoples, all nations trembled before Nebuchadnezzar, but he became proud, as we saw in chapter 4. The mighty Nebuchadnezzar said, look at all I have done. Look at all I have accomplished by me, myself, and I. And the living God humbled him like an animal. Nebuchadnezzar was brought low until he knew, in verse 21, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and sets over it whom he will. That's a theme for the entire book of Daniel. And then comes the indictment. Verse 22, 
and you, his son, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, though you knew all this about your predecessor, that lesson that grace flows downhill, not uphill, that lesson that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, that lesson which Nebuchadnezzar experienced and illustrated in his own life, Belshazzar knew that lesson but refused to listen, disregarded that lesson and ignored it. And I want to say kids and youth and teenagers growing up in a church going home, this can be you all too easily. You know you know about the living God. You know about Jesus Christ, what he's done for us. But it's not enough to grow up knowing. You must believe personally. You must apply those lessons to your life personally. Belshazzar knew. He knew all this. But at some point decided, you know, this doesn't, belong, uh, this doesn't apply to me. As J.C. Ryle put it, men fall in private long before they fall in public. Belshazzar had fallen in private, disregarding this lesson, long before he fell in public during this feast. So beware, friends, the fall in private. It will not stay private. Turn away. Get help. Involve others. And so... The prophet's indictment falls like a hammer in verse 23. You knew all this, verse 23, but have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised, praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. You can't catch the verbs here. You lifted yourself up, exalted yourself. You drank from the sacred things, desecrating them. You praised gods of silver and gold, committing idolatry. You did not honor. You did not honor the God who holds your next breath in his hands. All he has to do is close his hand, Belshazzar, and your life is over. Yet you disregarded him. I mean, this is, friends, an indictment about how God feels of all God-defying human pride. It's how he feels about all who mock him or minimize him or politely ignore him. You can defy God outwardly like Belshazzar or you can defy God inwardly, maybe thinking of yourself as a good person who has no need of God. all the while disregarding the God who holds your next breath. 
But step back for a moment. Remember, the first audience was primarily Israel, there in exile, in Babylon, particularly for the sin of idolatry. There were a lot of other issues, but idolatry was a big one. So this indictment, it's also like, it's also like a parent explaining, <laughs> lovingly explaining to their child <laughs> why they are experiencing some consequence for their behavior. God is reminding Israel of their own God-defiling pride and idolatry. Look, guys, you worship gods who don't see or hear or know, but I do, God is saying. And by the way, the exile cured Israel of idolatry. But what about us? I mean, you've probably not been praising the gods of wood and stone and gold this past week. Talk to me if you have. I doubt it. So how does this apply to us? Well, maybe think about it like this. I read a book recently called Isaac's Storm. It's about a hurricane, the hurricane that devastated Galveston, Texas in 1900. The worst American natural disaster in our history. Over 6,000 people died in Galveston. Isaac Klein was the resident meteorologist for the U.S. Weather Bureau at the time in Galveston. Mr. Klein, along with the entire Weather Bureau, was convinced that no such hurricane could ever reach Galveston. Galveston is safe on the coast of the Gulf of Mexico. No hurricanes would ever make their way all the way around and make landfall at Galveston, they said. We are secure. We are safe. The rising waters, the ominous clouds, don't worry about it. No need to evacuate. And the book jacket sums up the story as, quote, what happens, what happens when human arrogance meets the uncontrollable force of nature. Well, Belshazzar is what happens when human arrogance meets the uncontrollable force of divine holiness. So you might ask, well, where is human arrogance <laughs> making its appearance in my life? Where am I a bit like Isaac Klein? No need to worry. Where is human arrogance colliding in your life? Remember, the, the lesson Belshazzar didn't learn was Nebuchadnezzar repenting of basically saying, look at what I have accomplished, me, myself, and I. Now, that's what I can do in many ways. Same attitude. I can do this in marriage. Sung and I have been married almost 24 years, and truth be told, marriage for us gets sweeter and sweeter every year. She is a joy to be married to. But the attitude I can find in my heart at times is, look at the marriage I have accomplished. Look at the amazing spouse I am, really. I am a walking, talking marriage seminar for people. I should write books, go on tour. 
And not only that, start to, in subtle ways, look down on or be impatient with those who are struggling in their marriage. If they would only be like me. Why? <laughs> Why aren't they more like me? And that's not the low place that Nebuchadnezzar went to. That's the pompous place well, where Belshazzar is located. Or parents. Parents, can't we do this in our parenting? When our children are doing well, when our children are prospering in the Lord, we say, look at what I have accomplished in them. Through my parenting, look at what my parenting technique has accomplished. Look at what my parenting environment has accomplished. Look at my consistent training, what it has achieved. And we take credit in our parenting, don't we? And we start to look down on those whose kids are struggling. You know, I did A plus B and got C. They should have done the same as if our children are like robotically programmed and didn't need the grace of God transforming them from within. Now, I'm not saying parenting is unimportant. You know that. I'm saying beware of the pompous pride of, El of Belshazzar in your parenting. It's the same thing we do in our career or our finances, our education, our health, when those areas are doing well, the human tendency is to say, look at what I have accomplished. Praise the wisdom of me. Praise the ability of me, not the mercy of him. When, friends, grace flows downhill, not uphill. Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson in chapter 4. Belshazzar refused to do so in chapter 5, leading third to the verdict of God's justice. Third, the verdict here of God's holy justice. Daniel now reads the handwriting on the wall, beginning in verse 25. Look at verse 25. And this is the writing that was inscribed, he says. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Now those are just pretty normal Aramaic units of measurement. It's like ounce, pound, half pound. And yet Daniel gives the interpretation, the significance. Verse 26, here, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. It's over, Belshazzar. The Babylonian Empire is over. Verse 27, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Picture the statues of Lady Justice when she's blindfolded. In one hand, she's got scales. In the other hand, a sword. God is saying, Belshazzar, you were weighed in my scales and found wanting. Now the sword of justice. Verse 28. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And that very night, 539 B.C., the Persian army diverted the Euphrates River and waded through the riverbed under the city walls of Babylon and conquered. Numbered, weighed, and found wanting. Numbered, 
weighed and found wanting. That's the verdict of God's justice against Belshazzar and the entire Babylonian empire. God's justice, friends, if you want a main point, a main idea, God's justice will inevitably find all who proudly defy him. But Daniel 5 is not just about an event in the 6th century B.C. It's here to help us today occupy the low place before God and experience His grace. His grace in a couple of ways. I think first, it should produce in us what I would call a holy fear. A holy fear. Think of this passage like a mirror in which to consider ourselves before this God. Because like Belshazzar, our days are numbered too in a real sense. I don't mean in a judgment sense necessarily, but just in a, this is reality sense. The New York Times ran an article this week about a renowned transplant surgeon who got COVID, became deathly ill, spent two months in his own hospital recovering. Afterward, he said, quote, I had never faced the reality of death. I thought that was so interesting. This renowned surgeon dealing with life and death every day said, I had never faced the reality of it. But that's me too so often. I don't think about death. I think it's always going to be like this. Our days are numbered. Not only that, friends, we too will be weighed on the scales of divine justice, we will all give an account. The Bible's very clear about that. Those scales work like this. Fail at one point, you are guilty before God. That's Galatians 3.10, that's James 2.10. Fail one time, you stand guilty. And like Belshazzar, we know this. Romans chapter 1, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But grace flows downhill to the low places. So with a holy fear, you respond. With a right sense of awe and reverence and faith toward God, grace meets you. Because God has provided a solution for his holy justice in his son. His son who is never found wanting, but is perfect. And the Bible tells us that the father put forward that son as a propitiation for our sins. A wrath-bearing, justice-absorbing sacrifice. That God might be just and the justifier of those who believe. Just and the one who declares righteous, those who believe on Jesus Christ. So numbered, weighed, and found wanting applies to all of us left to ourselves. But Christ stands with open arms ready to receive you. Ready to credit you with his obedience in place of your disobedience. Ready to cover your rebellion with his sacrifice ready to apply his triumphant resurrection to give you the power of new life. I urge you, if you have not yet done so, to respond to God 
even now with a holy fear, seeing your need for Christ and crying out to Him for mercy, trusting in His life, death, and resurrection. But for all of us, I hope we have a holy fear leading us to Christ regularly, if not daily. We don't want to get away from this, do we? Christian, you need an awe-filled love and a reverence-filled faith and joy leading you to Christ every day. I want that. I hope you do too. That's how this passage helps us as a mirror, taking us to the low place of seeing our need for Christ. But secondly, this passage can also be like an x-ray like an x-ray. Here we're shown theologically why certain events happened historically. Providing us, I think, an enduring hope. Not just a holy fear. An enduring hope. A hope that keeps you going. Notice the conclusion of our passage. Verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So behold, a major transition in world history. From the Babylonian Empire to the Medes and Persians. Major event in world history. But this passage shows us, like an x-ray, much more was going on. This passage tells us why it happened. As John Golden Gay comments, Daniel 5 warns against, warns against overestimating the significance of history and politics. They're important. But he says this passage warns us against overestimating history and politics because we need to see what's really happening behind the scenes. We really need to see what God is doing. This change in kingdoms sets the stage for the Jewish exiles to go home. As the prophet Jeremiah prophesied, it's going to be 70 years, guys, 70 years in exile. Those are almost up. In a few short years, Darius the Mede of verse 31 probably another name for Cyrus, is going to issue a decree, exiles, go on back home. You see, God is here taking down one empire to advance his own. He's bringing down the Babylonian empire to take his people back to the land so that when they're back in the land, through them, he would bring forth his son who would come on the scene centuries later saying that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news, Mark chapter 1. That's how hope endures. You use the x-ray to see what's really happening. God is advancing his kingdom. Kingdoms will come. Human kingdoms will come. Human kingdoms will go. Nations will come. Nations will go. The United States, which I hope we're grateful for, will come. And it will go. But the kingdom of Christ is sovereignly advancing. That's what you can learn here. The kingdom of Christ 
is sovereignly, unstoppably advancing. Until Revelation eleven fifteen comes to pass, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. So friends, don't, don't underestimate the sovereign, advancing purposes of your King. This is your enduring hope, come what may. Come what may in history, come what may in politics, God is on the throne advancing the kingdom of His Son. This is the reality of God's judgment against God-defying pride, bringing the verdict of God's justice, or to say it more simply, God's justice will inevitably, inevitably define, uh, find all who defy him in human pride. That truth takes us, I hope, to the low places because grace flows downhill. And there in the low places, grace will meet you right now. So let's pray together first. I want to give you a moment too, just to respond to God himself. And if you have been defying him in unbelief or maybe politely ignoring this God, I urge you at this moment to take the low place before him. Acknowledge your need for Christ and hope only in him. He is eager to receive you. He promises not to drive away any who come to him. So come to him believing. Or if you are a Christian, maybe remind yourself as well of the low place, <laughs> a holy fear, the reality that we accomplish nothing on our own, that we need Christ every day in every way, and you have him by faith. You have his grace there at the low place. And hope in him right now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this this sobering passage of judgment. For it warns and protects us today and reminds us of your grace in Christ. So help us now to flee to Christ by faith alone. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to help us do that, to help us hope in Christ and so enjoy his grace.